Culture is live. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this is Cummings' is Culture, and today we have for you another guest. Um, we are trying to work through the phones right now. Uh, it is Ron from Turnbuckle Media. Ron, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Can you hear me? Jeremy, can you hear you me, there? Ron? Yes. Uh, since the call is connected. Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Good thing I didn't. Good thing I didn't swear in anger. <laughs> no, 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 no. Google, Google gave me a strike for that, but I was just introducing you, and this is coming this culture. This is episode seven. Uh, I told everybody that. Uh, more episodes was going to be coming that they were wanting to hear. And I think this is something that everyone wants to hear. Ron and myself have known each other through Twitter for a little while. And Ron does some great things. He has a, he, he has started something a while ago. When, when did you start Turnbuckle Media? Um, wow. Yeah, I want to say about 2014. It was around there, yeah, 2014. And the original idea, or actually, you know what? I'm going to go back further than that. It was around 2010 because the original concept was to start a uh, digital interactive magazine. If you might remember, around yeah, the time yeah. iPads came out and there were, new, um, there were new publishing software being developed, and it appeared for a time that as magazines, you know, print magazines were kind of dying off, and we were in that flux in between websites really getting um, – um, you know, go on mainstream pay, pay websites, people paying for content. It seemed like for a while magazines were going to shift digital and they were going to have this cool interactive format where you could integrate the written word with, um, you know, different elements to really enhance the reading experience with like photo albums and, and video and audio clips and things like that. And uh, we were producing this beautiful magazine, a wrestling magazine, and it started to win some awards and we were getting a little bit of traction, but the whole concept just never really took off not the magazine just the idea of people wanting to read digital magazines so you know before i uh, took too much of a bath i i let the marketplace do the talking for me and even though the magazine itself was well received uh, i pulled the plug on it which is really disappointing because i would still love to do a wrestling magazine it's just print it itself isn't financially viable really anymore and uh that's when i pivoted to video and um you know that's what i've been working on for the last few years I lose you, my man. Oh. Hey, we oh, lost I you there you. for a second, Ron. All right. Yeah. All right. We're back. Technology. Love hate relationship with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's going in and out for some reason. I have no idea why. Oh, boy. All right. I'll keep an eye on my end, make sure it doesn't nap, you know, what do you call it, go to sleep or anything. But did you hear my whole spiel or where did I cut off? Um, yeah, yeah, you get you, you got through that, and um, okay, yeah, uh, we was talking about well, something that, that that I think really cool. Like even though you like the the interactive magazine didn't like pan out exactly the way you thought it would, but you you didn't you didn't let that you didn't let Turnbuckle Media die. What happened is you evolved. Yeah, you have to because just and like I you did was originally. Something... Oh, go ahead. Mm. Oh no, no, no! This is another kerfuffle. Oh boy, could you hear me now, Jeremy? Yeah, yeah. All right. So yeah, well, like you were saying, evolving. Just like I was evolving from print to digital, I had to evolve from from digital to video, and actually, that's. You know, you look at all streaming services now, you look at, um, you know, it's like 80% of all content on social media that's viewed is video. It's it's just a massive demand for it. What's crazy is that every year now we produce more content than in the history of humankind all the years combined before. It's just crazy how much content is um, produced now. And the thing is, is, it's not saturated. There's a demand for more. And, and I'm just trying to find my niche and get my little piece of that pie. And do it through wrestling, mostly. Yeah. Um, now, didn't you have something to do with baseball also at one point? 
Well, for a while, I was working with ESPN and covering spring training because I live in a, in a uh, suburb of Phoenix. So we have the Arizona Diamondbacks out here. We have actually all four major sports teams um, along with Arizona State University. But we also have uh, spring training, the uh, Cactus League out here. Um, 16 teams play out here, 15, something like that. And uh, the Arizona Fall League. So I was uh, tied in with a lot of the coverage for uh, Major League Baseball for ESPN for three years. So, you know, like a lot of people here at wrestling and media, and they don't think of, oh, well, those wrestling reporters aren't real. But you do have ESPN experience. ESPN, uh, magazine publishing, newspapers. I've been involved in media on both the editorial side as a writer, as an editor, and on the business side in marketing for uh, since 96. So 24 years now to date myself. So, yeah, I have a pretty decent amount of experience in media on both sides of the ledger. And, um, you know, some some pretty high profile places as well. And I've worked with a number of high profile brands and done one off projects like the Arizona Diamondbacks and Gold's Gym, Arizona State University Athletics. So I've got a pretty pretty diverse background at this point in my career I, you know i jokingly refer to myself as a bit of a swiss army knife because i've done so many different things in media at this point <laughs> where when you work for espn do you still have an affiliation with espn by the way no what happened was for a while they were doing a lot of uh city and regional based coverage and they even had a number of city websites like chicago and a few others and they ended up pivoting away from that and instead focusing on on a uh, list of the top 100 sports teams, whatever sport at whatever level, college, pro, et cetera. So um, as far as here in Arizona, I think the Arizona Cardinals were the only team that made that cut, the top 100, maybe the Suns. So um, I ended up getting phased out of that. They did a lot of cutbacks also. But it was fun while it lasted, I'll tell you, man. Not to like taking a lunch break and sitting in the stands watching a Major League Baseball game or, you know, watching batting practice before the game starts or something. You know, I used to pinch myself about how lucky I was and try to soak it in. Well, when – like the Suns. Okay. So let me ask you something about the Suns. Did you ever cover anything for the Suns? Um, I'm trying to remember. I've been to a – did I – you know, I think maybe just one or two preseason games, but no regular season games. Did you ever see Charles Barkley there? Uh, not only did I see Charles Barkley there for a um, for a basketball game once, but as a segue, the first ever live wrestling event I went to was when I moved out here. I had a contact and got some killer seats for Monday Nitro, and uh, Ric Flair was in the ring cutting a promo, and uh, on that episode, he called Charles Barkley into the ring, and uh, he was part of the show for a few minutes. <laughs> that was pretty cool then wasn't it yeah 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 it was pretty wild uh so what has happened to phoenix sports like in your opinion what what's happened because you've got the cardinals who sort of fell off but now they're they're in pretty much full rebuild mode um you've got um you've got the Suns who have just been you know pretty bad for a while and the Diamondbacks are there, but it's not like they're, you know, like almost in contention for a World Series. So what what, what do you think, in your opinion, what's happened to, to Phoenix sports cause it, or Arizona sports? Because at one time they were, they, were, they were on top of the world at one point. Uh, it's a few things. One is ownership. Uh, like for the example of the Suns, the guy that owns the team, Robert Sarver, at the time he bought the team, I want to say it was about – 12, 12 years ago, he bought him for like $401 million, which at the time was a record. But by now, the team is worth over a billion dollars. But the guy's a banker. So when he bought the team, he tried running it like a traditional business. Whereas when you have a sports franchise, you can't really do that and be as – you know, you have budgets. It's not like you're running fast and loose with, with your money. But because the franchises appreciate the way that they do and the value goes up the way they do, a lot of times you'll have an owner that's willing to be aggressive and spend a little more knowing they're going to make the money back on the back end and and uh, in the postseason and merchandise. And he wasn't a guy that was willing to do that. He was running the team like like you would run a bank, like a business. And as a result, the uh, on-court um, uh, product suffered and he wasn't the best PR at PR and there were issues with fans and 
yeah, just a lot of little things that added up over time. Um, the Cardinals, until they got their new stadium out in Glendale, um, they were basically playing at the, at the uh, college stadium and didn't have any money. They were just... You know, it got so bad that they would charge players for for uh, drinks in the soda machines after, um, <laughs> you know, after they had one free, they would get literally like one drink and anything after that they had to pay for And Same with clothes and uniforms. So they've only really over the last handful of years gotten financially stable. And they're actually bouncing back this year now that they have uh, Kyler Murray at quarterback. They got DeAndre Hopkins at receiver and um, the defense is better this year. So we'll see. They, they just upset the uh, Niners in uh, week one. So we'll see how that pans out. The Coyotes, um, they started out in downtown Phoenix and, and they were a viable team and then ended up moving out to the West Valley where their their fan base is best in, or based in what's called the East Valley. And it was literally at least an hour drive to get out to the arena. And as beautiful as it is, a lot of people out here don't want to drive that far. It's, you know, we're practically the West Coast and there's a lot of that West Coast uh, laissez-faire mentality people don't want to drive 60 75 90 minutes to a to a hockey game unlike the east coast or the southeast for college football or something like that where it's more of a diehard fan base and as a result they've been struggling financially and as a matter of fact they're having a lot of issues now with their new owner and they're late on paying bills for the arena and um but they were late on play, paying player bonuses it's just it's another just a, a real cluster and um the diamondbacks it's the same thing because this market is so saturated and there's so many uh, um, people. It's such a melting pot here with um, a large number of residents from other parts of the country. So now there's finally a full generation of 20 years of Diamondbacks fans. But still, they, you know, on average, average, they'll draw about 18 to 20,000 fans a game. But it's kind of tough to have a, you know, a viable business model to spend like a top team to be able to compete, especially with the Dodgers in the same division where basically it's like they just go out behind the Dodgers stadium and break off a branch from the money tree if they need another player and, uh, and add more talent. Uh, then Arizona State University, you know, it's a mid, mid-level Pac-12 university. They, they have some top-notch sports teams, but – the big programs like football and basketball, they, they have little glimmers of success and then they kind of fall back to the pack. So essentially it's just an oversaturation of teams, um, some incompetence with ownership and um, just the nature of the, of the melting pot of this market. And you add all of that together and it's just, it just gets challenging. So you'll have moments of, you know, fleeting moments of success. And then like you said, it kind of, kind of fall out of the spotlight for a while. Yeah, see, I'm lucky, see, because I live in Alabama, and we've got the University of Alabama here, and we've got, you know, arguably, when it comes to college football, the two greatest football coaches that have ever been, and Paul Bear Bryant and Nick Saban. But what a lot of people don't realize when they look at a program like Alabama, Alabama goes through the same cycle because just because it's cool to be an Alabama fan right now doesn't mean that – fire university we had a we had a coach fired because he was taking players to a a, a strip club he got fired for that he didn't get so, a bonus <laughs> oh, hey, do what? I, oh i said he got fired for that he didn't get a bonus no he got fired <laughs> yeah he got fired for that um he never what, even took the it? field like he had like one or two practices and that was it <sighs> Yeah, that's kind of tough. I guess uh, was, was he? I, I've heard stories about the things universities will do to recruit players, and you know the uh, hosts or the hostesses, if you will, and um, you know some of the things that that'll go on to try and attract players to go to their school. But I haven't heard of a player. I mean, a coach actually bringing players to a strip club. That's that's a new one, and, and that's not going to happen out here at Arizona State because we have Herm yeah. Edwards as our head coach, and he's. Uh, yeah, he's Mr. Motivation. Yeah. But he's turning the program around, so I'll give him credit for that. I didn't think he was going to be able to. We'll see. Her, uh, uh, Herm Edwards, he actually – I think what brought him back to coaching was he was the motivational speaker at the University of Alabama. One, uh, the, the year before he, you know, took seriously into getting back into coaching. Right. He uh, – he was the motivational speaker at the 
University of Alabama, like their their pre motivational speech or whatever that they have every year. Like they've had Kobe Bryant this year. They had Jordan. I mean, they they've had pretty much the who's who, and Herm Edwards was that guy the year before he took the took the job and. From what I've been told, that played a big role into him wanting to get back into coaching. Well, I know also that the uh, athletic director at Arizona State, he had come up with a um, – like a – you talk about evolution um, with the way that the AD at ASU visualized the sports programs was he wanted them to all more or less run and operate as if they were their own small businesses. Now, obviously, a football program, basketball program operates at a different level than pretty much all the other sports teams. But with that strategy and mindset, that was the way he wanted to structure the uh, hierarchies, you know, from the head coach all the way down. And in his mind, the head coaches were not only the head of the, of the um, football program, but also he wanted them to view themselves as, as, uh, as if they were a CEO. So that was one of the things that he liked about uh, Herm Edwards is he had the confidence that uh, Herm can come in and, uh, you know, you've heard the the saying of be a leader of men, but usually in a coaching sense, whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, this was actually a leadership, you know, position, almost like if it was uh, ASU Football Inc., you know what I mean? So um, I had my doubts about it when Herm first came in, because if I remember right, when he finished up with Kansas City with his last coaching gig uh nfl coaching gig he lost some crazy it was like 32 out of 35 games before he got let go it was just an insane putrid record of just you know horrendous football and uh you know even even as a jets fan we can make fun of him at that time because it was just so bad so when he came here a lot of people just (laughs) remember that that horrendous stretch that he had and you know, we didn't really have the utmost confidence in him. We thought he was just going to be one of those motivational rah-rah guys that can maybe recruit because he's a guy that you can really buy into what he says. But then once it got, you know, time to uh, do the X's and O's based on his lack of success in the pros, we didn't think it was going to pan out. But, you know, so far, so good. I don't know if they get back to a Rose Bowl or not, but that's the hope. Uh, they may do it. Um, now, you, if I'm not mis- – well, I'm not mistaken because I just, you know, I, I try to do a little, make sure that everything, you know, just a little research, make sure everything's fresh on my mind before I do something like this. But now you grew up in New York. How did you end up in Arizona? Well, my first career goal was I wanted to be a uh, play-by-play uh, broadcaster for the National Hockey League. That was my first, um, my first intention. And I had, taken uh, an internship through junior college on Long Island with the New York Islanders back in 1992-93. And through that internship, I got to know the Islanders play-by-play man, Jiggs McDonald, a little bit. And um, when it came time to start looking for a four-year college, um, after I finished my two years on Long Island, you know, at the junior college, because I had to get my grades up because I was a bit of a slacker in high school. So I didn't know what good broadcast (laughs) Uh, programs that were because this again this is the early 90s it's not like now where you just google and find anything you want in 30 seconds you know so um yeah uh, so the islanders broadcaster jigs mcdonald was was a good guy and uh he was nice enough to he gave me like five five or six options i remember michigan boston university emerson which is also in in uh boston uh loyola down in new orleans and uh, the two Arizona schools, Arizona State and University of Arizona. But I didn't like Tucson, and I did not like the U of A, so I knew I wasn't going to go there. And uh, I checked out all the other schools, but when I came out here to Arizona in Tempe, I just fell in love with the area. Uh, I came out in June when it was over 100 degrees, and it didn't even matter. It was so hot that I made the mistake of renting a Jeep, and I was so excited because there was actually mm-hmm. one available, not realizing that it's because everybody that lives here is smart enough to know not to rent an open vehicle in the middle of June in Phoenix because <laughs> you're literally cooking while you're driving. It was so hot. I still can hear it like it was yesterday. We went to this restaurant, my now wife, who then was my girlfriend. We went yeah. to this restaurant, right? We parked, go inside, come out, we get ready to leave. And as I'm pulling the Jeep out of the spot, you can literally hear the rubber on the tires like peeling on the pavement as we were backing out of his spot because <laughs> the rubber was just so soft and hot. I was like, holy crap. 
but um, um, the program here was pretty good. And because I wanted to work in hockey, they had a minor league team here in Phoenix at that time. This is before the Coyotes uh, moved uh, here from Winnipeg. And in my mind, it was like, well, great, maybe I can go to college, start at the minor league level here in the same town that I'm going to school, and then parlay that into some opportunity, ideally, in the National Hockey League. So um, that's what brought me here to Phoenix. And I did do a little bit of broadcasting and hockey at the college level with their club team and then in the minor leagues for for, uh, two seasons. But then that's when I started um, getting involved in the magazine world and um, my career path took a sharp right turn and, you know, for better or worse, the rest is history. We just had a breaking news come in. I don't know if you've received the same notification I have, but the Supreme Court has released a statement that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. Wow. That's going to be a major shift in the in the uh, power now with that seat open. I know she's been fighting, uh, I think it was a couple types of cancer for a while. Wow. Just before the election, too. Huh. Yeah, she has died. Things are going to get real interesting. Um, so that pretty much. Yeah, this this will be the and I don't I don't like getting into the whole political thing. But whether you're on either side, this will set precedent in this country for the next 50 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was the pivot so. seat there between the two parties. And now it's going to be up for grabs. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you can't yeah, understate is, the importance of it. Yeah, this is this suddenly became. Um, now it, it most definitely is. It's a <clears throat> it's a must win election for both parties. Um, so. Um, that was some breaking news that came in. I did not expect that to happen during a podcast, but wanted to get that out there. But Ron. Um, you sent me a link to something and I had not seen it till you sent me that link and you're doing a documentary of I am funny bones. And before we get to that, but, uh, before we get to that, you also did a documentary on Chris Candido for the ones who don't know Chris Candido was a professional wrestler. He tragically died. He was in a relationship with Sonny, um, whatever her name is. But anyway, I can't think mm-hmm. Tammy Sitch. She ran around on yep. him, cheated on him, whatever. Yep. Um, and um, how interesting was doing that documentary and going to where Chris grew up and how surreal is it to see, you know, the, the, that a lot of people see these people on the television screen and they don't get the point that these are real people and real families. But when you go to their <clears> home <throat> and their childhood home and you see how they grew up and things they put on the wall, how, how surreal is that? Like how, how changing, how does that change people's opinions of what they see on television? Yeah. I mean, it's huge and I'll give you some examples in just a sec, but just um, for the sake of accuracy, I'm still under production with the Candido documentary. It's been a while. I've been working on it for mm-hmm. a few years, but you know, because it's self-funded and um you know, I, I only have three interviews left I want to do at this point, Lance Storm, Jim Cornette, and Tom Pritchard. But then, the, you know, when I was getting ready to um, start pursuing those, one, Lance got hired by WWE, so I couldn't speak to him. And then the virus uh, outbreak started, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's still challenging to try to get around and talk to people. And, you know, Jim's pretty uh, uh, guarded as far as uh, contact with, with people, uh, you know, at, at his home in Louisville, so... Uh, all three have said they want to talk, but, you know, I just got to wait and mother nature had some other plans for all of us, you know, so trying to work that out. But, you know, you talk about what is it like to be at the, uh, you know, at the places where these people grew up and spent their time and where they were, you know, in the case of Chris Candido, he was just Chris or as his family and friends called him, his nickname was, was cook. So I got to see his old stomping grounds. Um, he was raised in spring Lake. New Jersey, which is a nice affluent uh, area right on the Jersey shore. And, um, you know, his parent, his mom and stepdad still live in the same house. Uh, it, it's really, you know, just 
nice, you know, it, it's affluent, but it's not like, it's not a gated community. It's not stuffy. It's, it's, a, it's just a nice upper middle class, you know, East coast shoreline community. And anybody that's familiar with that part of the country, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but because it's in the Northeast, uh, you know, wrestling was so big there in the nineties and, and Chris's uh, life revolved around wrestling beginning with the point that his step uh, grandfather, um, you know, wrestled for WWF for a while. He was an enhancement guy. And um, that's how Chris got introduced to wrestling. But uh, part of what I got access to uh, through his brother, Johnny, who uh, is co-producing this with us, uh, was, uh, you know, his his um, his attic is upstairs called The Office. And that was where they had all of the wrestling posters up on the ceiling, hundreds of wrestling magazines, all mm-hmm. kinds of old school merchandise, items from Chris's career, things from Chris's childhood that he made with like pictures and the paper championship belts, uh, just all kinds of things that, that uh, humanized and personalized and really brought me into the various stages of Chris's life, uh, both as a wrestling fan uh, just as a you know person, as a son, as a friend, and all of the different spokes in the wheel that made up the life of Chris Candido, and the family couldn't have been more accommodating as far as how welcoming and how um, mm-hmm. accommodating they were with access and information, and um, you know with helping with setting up interviews. Uh, I, I went out to, to the Jersey Shore twice, and uh, on the second trip. <clears throat> That happened to be an independent show on Long Island, my old stomping grounds, coincidentally, that uh, was being run by uh, Tommy Dreamer when he had his house of ha- hardcore promotion. And it was literally like 20 minutes from, from where I was uh, raised myself. So I knew the area like the back of my hand. It was about a two-hour drive from, from the uh, uh, Jersey Shore home that we were doing the shooting at. So we took a drive up and Tommy hooked us up and we did about – geez about 20 interviews just in that night alone including with terry funk and uh you know tommy and so many others that were touched by chris in one way or another and i got uh, a little bit of insight from uh chris's time in ecw and you know just what he meant to people uh within the industry because you know one of the things i've learned uh by being you know close to wrestling to some degree and following it for as long as i have is there's just a small number of people that are really good people that are universally loved. And we've seen it at a high level, like with Owen Hart and with his tragedy and how nobody has anything bad to say about the guy. Right. Well, Chris wasn't quite as well known, Mm -hmm. but in terms of the universal love for the guy and, and just how much people respected him and, and uh, you know, and enjoyed him and just truly liked him. it, It was pretty similar uh, only you had that added element of the broken relationship with uh, Tammy and the, uh, you know, the, the factors that went along with, um, you know, how she and uh, cheated on him behind his back. And then the dynamic that created between her and Chris and then the friction with Chris's family because they were aware of what was going on. And then eventually there were issues with pills and drugs that event- that Chris was able to overcome. And this is all stuff again, you know, by being in his hometown and talking to the people that were closest to him. And, uh, you know, the wrestling is really like, it's not a typical wrestling biopic where I kind of go segment by segment through his career and just rehash that. This is a life story about someone who happens to be a wrestler and the different aspects of his career are simply convenience points to help with fans that are familiar with his um, time in the ring to associate that with these different stories of his life. So it's just, you know, and that was what attracted me to it in the first place. And one of the things that helped me get in with, with uh, Chris's family was the fact mm-hmm. that I grew up in New York, in the Northeast, and, you know, all different parts of the country to have different cultures, uh, you know, people that are from that same region. And I'm sure it's the same with you down in Alabama. You know, there's just a certain bond with people that know what it's like to grow up in the area and the culture that goes along with it, the little you know, nuances that go with living in that part of the country. So because I had grown up just a couple of hours from where Chris and his family grew up, you know, they, they could appreciate that I understood kind of the family dynamic, you know, that, that Chris had and the, the friendships and the loyalties and, fr- and relationships, et cetera. So, um, 
that really helps a lot with my street cred with the family and in turn made them more comfortable to really bring me in. And, and there was nothing that was off limits, whether it's access information, um, interviews and it, this, it, you know, just talking about it again, gets me all antsy because, um, you know, I want to finish this thing and get the story out there. Um, but, but sometimes some factors are beyond my control. It was financial at one point, but now I finally got the finances and now it's, you know, the, these issues with the health crisis. So once it's out there and done, it'll, it'll be, you know, it'll be as good, I think, as I can, I can make it because of all the factors I just spoke about, along with the hundreds and hundreds of photos that I have and other footage that I've, I have literally hundreds of hours of footage that I'm going to be able to use for B-roll, for cutaways, et cetera. And uh, shoot interviews, and you just, I mean, you name it, and I've got it. So it's so much that has never been seen before, and it's going to tell a story that that I think is going to go over pretty well, judged by the um, response from the trailer when I first, first put it out. It's, like I said, it's been a few years, admittedly, but I've got more than 45,000 views on it. I've got a lot of endorsements. You know, I had a lot of people in the wrestling industry direct message me and say nice things about the trailer and, and um, you know, offer to help promote it once it's done. So... You know, it's gone from a labor of love to just kind of a little bit of a labor because it's taken longer than I intended. But, you know, once it's said and done and the final product is finished, then, uh, you know, it'll, it'll all be worth it. And I'm really hoping that that'll open the floodgates because I want to do so much more with storytelling that, you know, you know, like the guys at Dark Side of the Ring have raised the bar with wrestling storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to go even further than that because I see opportunities that for as good as the work is that they've done there's still things that i i can visualize i could take it even to the next level i'm doing it a little bit with the candido project but then i have this other one this other docuseries that i'm working on that i think is going to be the first one that raises the bar to that point that that i you want to take it to in terms of wrestling um related content yeah that um that, that trailer is uh, I Am Funny Bones, and anybody can view it on YouTube. And that is one of the coolest things I've ever seen because it's just like, like if somebody, if you've seen that, if you just seen that, that, that preview and that little trailer, um, you would think, okay, what's this about? Is this about a villain or... You you would immediately be thinking that this is some kind of 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 legitimate like DC or Marvel movie because the way <laughs> that you have him painting his head and I mean the 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 overtone over it of of, mm-hmm. of of that speech that is given during you know you're seeing all this cinematic stuff going on and it's just like all right this is pretty freaking cool what is this and then you find out it's a wrestling thing and you're just like this is a wrestling thing. Like it, it, it sort of makes it where that little trailer, I think that makes it where everybody's like, okay, the trailer's this good. So I want to see the thing. I want to see how good this is going to be because I do. I want to see it when it's done. <laughs> and that's the idea. And if anybody wants to watch the trailer, it's on, um, I have a production company with a couple buddies of mine, two, two, two films, on YouTube, but if you just go in the in the window, you know, and type in "I am Funny Bone" trailer, you'll find it. It's only two and a half minutes, and uh, that was, you know, I appreciate the kind words. And the idea of when we put that together was a couple of things. We had a few objectives. One was we wanted to shoot it with a, uh, you know, with a really cool cinematic tone, especially given the character that Funny Bone is, because he looks like, uh, you know, like. A, a skeleton. He's an evil demigod, basically, is the way that he portrays his character on, on the independent wrestling circuit. And he's a one-of-a-kind looking guy. There's definitely nobody that visually looks like him. He has the mannerisms that he's been able to perfect over the course of his career. Um, you know, and, and he can go in the ring, too. So right from the time his music starts, which is uh, Rob Zombie, uh, was uh, Land of a Thousand Corpses, once, once the... Uh, music hits from the time he comes through the curtain it's a show you know his his walk to ringside every stride and there's just so much to the character and so many layers but then Mm -hmm. like i said with uh the chris candido documentary 
this is a really intriguing guy with an amazing life story that has many layers to him as well. So you have not only the unique aspect of him as a wrestler, and um, I mean, you can identify with what it's like to be an independent wrestler and driving town to town. You know, this guy's making the towns to make to earn the money to uh, support his family. Ideally, at some point to get the big break. So he's driving all up and down the West Coast to Arizona. He's based out of Vegas and doing what he's got to do to make a name for himself. But then also he has a family dynamic with, with his uh, girlfriend and their blended family. With the, with the, There used to actually be two women and him, three of them with uh, seven kids. Uh, now it's just him and the one girlfriend. And there's different elements with the kids with different physical challenges. Um, one of them is blind. Another one was mute for the first two years of his life. And there's a set of twins that are mixed in there. There's just a lot of unique aspects to, to the uh, family dynamic itself. And then you have Funny Bone. You know, obviously his real name isn't Funny Bone. He's a real man behind the paint. What we do is we unmask him as far as digging deep into his life. And he's a guy that was raised in, in just, you know, severe poverty. His mom was a drug addict and a stripper. His dad was not in his life at all. Uh, it was him and his older brother. His brother is about a year and a half older. And they basically raised themselves. And, you know, the stories of the poverty and, and the neighborhood that he lived in, in, in uh, Vegas, which was basically a gang-riddled uh, area of the city, and the stories that he has to tell and, and um, you know, the strange relationship that he still has with his mom and uh, their side of the family, which is based in Iowa, and um, the strange relationships that he has with them, you know, especially because he lives in wrestling, or excuse me, works in wrestling, Um but now, you know, his goal is to give his family all the things he didn't have when he was growing up, which is his driving force. You know, that's his motivation to keep wrestling. And at the same time, hoping to catch that big break. And who knows, with all elite wrestling, perhaps that becomes something at some point or, you know, just because independent wrestling has gotten as big as it has. But again, it's just the point that here's an amazing story about a unique individual that happens to be a pro wrestler. And that's one of the things that, I educated my two partners about in my production companies that the world of wrestling is just loaded with interesting stories because you have such a diverse set of people and eclectic group of individuals. You have to be a little screwed up in head just to become a wrestler. It's such a unique business. And then you have these people that come from all of these different backgrounds with their own stories about what led them to become professional wrestlers. And all we see, like you said, are those eight, 10, 12 minutes that they're in the squared circle and then they go backstage and then they go back to being who they are and they're on the road or whatever it is. They go home to their families and there's just so much to tell that, that goes untold. And, you know, like I said earlier about hoping the Candido documentary could be a springboard to bigger and better things. The same thing goes with this documentary, or excuse me, docu-series for I Am Funny Bone. You know, we're trying to find a distributor now to get a production deal in place so we can, uh, you know, start producing actual episodes. But, um, you know, the idea is that if this first one goes and, and has some level of success, you know, I've already got my eyes on many other people, whether it's for individual documentaries or for docu-series that I'd love to be able to shine a spotlight on, which goes back to my point earlier that for as great a job as Dark Side of the Ring is done, you know, I want to get away from just like, you know, the, the seedy side of the business and focus more on the individuals and their unique stories and shine a spotlight on those and share them and, and get it out there because there's plenty of them. Yeah. And <clears throat> something else uh, that like you were talking about, I mean, how weird is it that a lot of people out there don't understand the fact that, that these are just normal people. Like, there's so many people that think that these are superhumans. There's some people who think that they're not. Ooh, I talked to people, oh, actually, that around him and the times that he is went off. If you don't think they're legitimate tough guys, I mean, you, you, you're crazy because you you have to be – it's like you said, you have to be a little crazy to do something like that because a lot of people think that that ring is soft and that ring is, you know, oh, they know how to fall. But, you know, 
they what they don't understand is that up under that, yeah, there may be a half inch to an inch, maybe sometimes thick of of foam or padding or whatever. But up <clears throat> under that, most of the time, it's uh, two by eight boards, and well, you have to I'll, be a little crazy to be willing to fall on that. I'll tell you what. I know Danny Cage, the owner of the Monster Factory in South Jersey. And mm -hmm. that's actually where Chris mm -hmm. Candido trained under the original owner, Larry Sharp. But Danny was really cool to let me come out there uh, when we were shooting uh, for the documentary. Point being, though, he let me go. He has two rings, you know, top-notch rings. And uh, he let yeah. me go in one and just get a feel mm -hmm. for what it's like to be between the ropes. Because at that point, I had never taken a bump. I never ran the ropes. And I'll tell you, just getting in the ring, you got to make sure you don't hook your foot on the middle rope and take a header. I mean, it's just little things that you take for granted when you watch, you know, especially WWE and AEW now, because these are the professionals at the highest level. And, you know, whatever you think of either yeah. brand or, or their booking or whatever, it doesn't matter. These are the best in the industry. And, um, you know, the speed for which they perform at, you know, until you get in a ring and you bounce off the ropes and, you know, you, you try to pace yourself to not fall between the middle rope and top rope or, you know, not get caught between <laughs> steps and, and, you know, just simple things that seem so easy or, you know, taking a flat back bump, you know, which, which I did for the first few times in, in uh, one of the Monster Factory rings. And yeah, until you do that yourself and, and see what it's like, even at that slow speed, and then you realize the guys like like Triple H was really good at the flap back, you know, snap bumps, and you know when I watch guys or, or women for that matter, you know when they take a punch and they snap back quick and and sell it, and it, it's just like, geez, you know, I think back to the weak ass bump that I took, and you know, my response to to hitting the mat, and it's <laughs> like seeing these people doing it, and then you think about how they do it. Maybe, you know, if they're, if they're in a 30-minute match, maybe 100, 150, 200 times in one match. And then they wrestle the yeah. next night. And then they wrestle the next night. And they're driving hundreds of miles in between to shows. And it's four nights a week. And it's just like, you know, little things like that just give you a greater appreciation for what they do. So, it, it, you know, when I see people criticize wrestlers, like I don't – on my social media, like I'll critique booking. I'll critique logic. But I never critique any of the workers. Um, you know, if something doesn't make sense, that's one thing. But knowing what these, you know, what level of talent it takes to do what they do, I, I don't criticize them based on that. Um, just because I don't think it's really fair unless you're somebody that's been there, been in there, and done it. Um, but again, I don't, I don't think that precludes critiquing a product or a quality you don't have to be a chef to know a meal is burnt you know so to speak but you're not going to tell a chef how to prepare yeah. the meal so um um you know that, that just gave me a, a different appreciation for what it's like for the people that do go in there and make a living out of being a wrestler when you went to the monster factory did they tell you that if you come off the top rope like if you take a bump <clears> off the top rope and you hit your elbows, shatter your, both of your elbows. And a lot of people don't think of that when they do so. When they, when they see them come off the top rope, if you land on your elbows, you are going to shatter an elbow. You're going to break an elbow because right up under that, there's not that much padding there. Well, Buzz Sawyer has done that on a frog splash, and Eddie Guerrero did that on a flag, uh, um, frog splash. If you remember, Eddie, it was. Man, he was with WW. I think it was WWF at the time. He wasn't even there a month, and he did a frog splash in a match and popped out his elbow when he was out for a while. But um, no, I, I didn't go off the top. Like I, I did go off the top rope, but I landed on my feet. I didn't do anything. I just wanted to get a feel for the height. But I was with Johnny Candido, who wrestled for a while. He, you know, he did enhancement work with WWF, so he knew what he was doing. He was doing, you know, three sixties off the top rope and stuff. But. Uh, you know, I just jumped off and landed on my feet to get a feel for what, what the height was like. Um, but no, nobody said anything about the elbows and, and dislocating them, but I wasn't going to do anything that crazy. It's that, you know, I, I know, I know my, my, uh, pay scale, so to speak, I wasn't going to go above and beyond what I was capable of. 
Yeah, that's that's something a lot of people they they just think, oh, it's all padded. It's like a big trampoline, and and it's not. It's not. It's not a big trampoline, and they they just don't know. I remember when Larry King did an interview with Vince McMahon, and when he went there, um, Larry walks up and he slaps the side of the ring with when he was talking to Vince, and he goes, "This is like a boxing ring," and he was like, "Yeah." You know, they, they, they don't understand until they're there and they feel it and they're like, wait a minute. And those ropes that they use are actual real the only thing that protects you from getting rope burn, which you're still gonna get rope burn. But the only thing that protects you when you get real ropes is that they, they put freaking it's I mean, it's pretty much um electrical tape. Yep. They just tape around the I mean, that's that's it. And that stuff doesn't feel good when it's hitting you in the back. So I, I mean, the the people that do that, you you are a hundred percent spot on. You have to be, you, you have to be, you have to have a, a a little bit of a. You almost have to be desperate because that's the way a lot of them are. A lot of them, you almost have to be desperate to do it because if you're not desperate, you're never going to make it as as a professional wrestler. Like I've seen Chris Jericho talk about it. He's talked about it a few times. Kurt Angle. He thought that he was just going to transition over and be great, and he did become great. But at the beginning, you know, a lot of people think, "Oh, I'm a good athlete; I can get in there and do that." And then they find out they can't. Yeah, and always look at how many people come from other walks of life. Football. How many guys have come from football and tried to get in the ring? Um, you know, Pat McAfee had that match with Adam Cole not long ago, and you know the fact that he didn't trip over his feet and was competent in the ring. And, uh, you know, he earned so many accolades for the fact that he didn't embarrass himself or the business. But that's why, because to your point, you have people that come from other walks of life. And again, the simplest of things like hitting the ropes takes so much practice that when you have somebody that comes from another sport, like Pat McAfee did with football, and he was only a kicker. So he only had, you know, um, a limited amount Mm -hmm. of skills that he needed to maintain to succeed in the NFL, as opposed to somebody else that was out there, you know, for 60 plays a game. But yet he was still able to translate his athletic skills into the ring. But that's a small number of people that have actually been able to do that. Um, so, so it just, you know, ideally it makes you realize that, again, you know, even a lot of these UFC and MMA uh, athletes that come into the world of wrestling, Brock Lesnar and, and um, uh, Shayna Baszler and, uh, oh, I just blanked the woman. Um, oh, what's her name? The woman wrestler who was huge and. Oh, I just blanked on her name. The UFC, uh, she came over for a year. Ronda Rousey. Yeah, Ronda Rousey. And, and, set, and she set the world on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after that, you know, there's other Tito Ortiz and, and Mo, you know, King. Uh, oh, what's his name with TNA? You know, it's a, lo- it's a longer list of people that don't make it than do make it. King Mo is the point. King Mo, there you go. Thank you. What's his name? King Mo but, uh, Hall or something like that. Yeah, something like that. But the point is, the list of people that that transition from other sports into wrestling that make it is a lot shorter than those that don't make it. And when they do make it or show any kind of competence, they Adam, they, they stand out because of it. Yeah, Adam Pacman Jones to some degree. Yeah, Adam Pacman Jones tried it. I don't think he ever actually did anything though. I, I don't remember much about his short little tenure of him trying to be a, a wrestler. But, I mean, oh, God, what was his name? He was in the Four Horsemen when I was a kid. Um, Mongo McMichael? Good God. Yeah, Mongo. Mongo. Mongo did, played for did, the Chicago Bears. Did you – yeah, yeah, yeah. He was part of the 85 Super Bowl championship team. But th- did you see there's a Twitter account dedicated to Mongo McMichael? And it's it's not – by Mongo, it's by a fan, and you know Mongo wasn't the smoothest guy in the ring. So this fan finds no. all of these Mongo isms, if you will, for just these less than smooth. You know they say wrestling ain't ballet. Well, that's for sure when it comes to Mongo and and his foot, <laughs> footwork or lack thereof. You know because there, you know he, it's appropriate he was in the Horseman because he kind of plotted around the ring. Um, and it makes for some funny clips now, 20 years later, when you watch him and, and executing these moves. But at the same time, there were some times that he looked pretty good. And you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. But 
it's worth a look if you haven't seen it yet. And I, I wish I could remember the name right now, but it, it, if you do, it's like Mongo something or another in the name. And there's not many out there. I'm sure you can find it easy. Oh, there's another one. I don't know if you know about this one or not, but there's one that's dedicated is Teddy Hart in jail. And like every day, yeah. they put, no, no, no. And then they'll put yes. And I, I just found it the other day. And I'm like, these people are like rabid when it comes to like pro wrestling. Like there is some people out there that just like, this is they they eat it they sleep it they breathe it like if there wasn't pro wrestling on i don't know what some of these people would do and it's scary to think what they might do well i'll tell you what the 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 uh, world champion of um tribute twitter pages or twitter accounts is one called rick rude sells atomic drops and it's just a bunch of clips from back in the day when the atomic knee drop actually used to be a you know a, a move that people would use and rick rude always had these great facial expressions and you know the way he would sell the atomic drop and he would like bend at the knees halfway and hold his tailbone and it, you just got to watch it and the way you know depending on the talent of the guy he was in the ring with sometimes he'd go a little bit over the top kind of like a kurt hennig sell job uh other times he would just be a little more um subtle to set up for something else you know another move uh, like a clothesline or something, but all of them were just, you know, you never saw him sell the same way twice. And there's got to be about 50 different clips of Rick Rude selling atomic knee drops that are just hysterical. And it's worth a look if, if, uh, if you want to track that down on Twitter also. Yeah. All right, Ron. We've run almost my time. Uh, go ahead and plug your social media and everything <clears throat> you want to plug. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Um, Turnbuckle Media. It's at Turnbuckle Media on Twitter and YouTube. Uh, also, I have a Twitter page. It's dedicated just to old school wrestling, and that's at Old Wrestling Picks. So if you want to check that out, I've got almost 48,000 followers on that one, which is amazing. It's just a whole bunch of old school wrestling fans. I have a ton of people in the business that follow me on there. And I'm always putting up clips, video clips, photos, GIFs, all kinds of stuff, and it's all old school wrestling. So if either you like wrestling from back in the day if you if you're a little disillusioned by today's product and just kind of like to remember how wrestling used to be or you or you like everything and just still like to see an old clip of bruiser brody pop up on your timeline once in a while and give me a follow you won't be disappointed yeah well ron i want to thank you for taking the time to come on yeah i and appreciate you having me on congrats on the new podcast yeah, thank you. I appreciate it, and you, you, you're welcome back on any time. Yeah, whenever you need me, I appreciate it, man. It was great reconnecting with you, too. Yeah, it was good talking to you. And everybody, that wraps up Cummins' Culture, Episode 7 with Ron from Turnbuckle Media. Like always, I hope these podcasts find you in good health. And always remember, I'm not controversial. I'm just culture. Thanks, Ron.